As uh, in, this week is our, uh, is our second week in our five-part homily series that we're doing throughout this Lent. Um, I know Father Bruce last week had started us off, kind of kicked us off um, with uh, breaking down worship, right? If we have to sum up last week's homily, um, if you're just joining us, we're, we're going through a, a homily series on the Mass, going through a why does the Mass look the way it does. And the main reason why we're doing that, very simply, is because... Um, the litmus test a lot of times for Catholics of kind of, quote-unquote, how Catholic are you, is how much you go to Mass, right? It's the easy kind of measurable behavior that we have that we can see, oh, that, that's how, quote-unquote, Catholic you are, right? Or how serious you take your Catholic faith is how much you go to Mass. What it usually looks like, um, there, I think there are a few different, there, there's a lot of different expressions of that, um, but kind of three categories, if we want to be honest. Um, what one group we call, I, I, that, that, that have maybe two different names, uh, flower Catholics or CEOs. What I mean, flower Catholics, Easter lilies, and Christmas poinsettias, right? So Christmas and Easter onlys, right? We, we, we all know this. We all know family members. We probably have family members um, that, you know what? I show up to Mass whenever it's Christmas, when it's Easter, when somebody's getting married, or somebody dies. Like, that's about it, right? And we all have those people in our life, um, and we're praying for them, and we, we're hoping, no, no judgment, but it's just kind of the reality. The next kind of category, if you will, of, of, of quote-unquote Catholic, and next kind of level up, if you will, of Catholic, is uh, I go to church every Sunday. The, the my pew Catholics, right? Where I walk into the church and I got my spot and my pew. And if anybody's sitting in my spot or in my pew, I'm going to sit right behind them and not pray for them, but I'm going to pray through them, like right through the back of their head, right? We were, we were my pew Catholics, right? And then if you got a third level, if you will, um, a lot of times there's people that are, are later in life, that, that might be in a new season of life, that, that are now retired and, and kind of being able to take their faith as serious as they want to. Um, we got our daily mass Catholics, right? These are the people that live in the church. <laughs> uh, these are the people that not only got my pew on the weekend, but it's reserved throughout the week as well, right? A lot of times for us as, uh, us as parish priests, um, the, the daily mass Catholics, you know who you are, we're the, you're the ones that we get to know the best because we see you every day. It's great. We get to kind of learn you and know about your life and all those good things. But there's almost a litmus test of how Catholic you are, like what level you are as a practicing Catholic based off of going to mass. But regardless of where we are, regardless of if you're in the church two times a year, if you, if you haven't been to church in a while with COVID and everything else, or if you're in church and you, and you basically got a, a cot in the back because you live there, right? No matter where you are, I think one of the biggest things is that a lot of Catholics lose sight or have never understood why does the Mass look like it does? Like, wh why do we come in and do the same thing every week? So the reason why we're breaking this theme open over the course of this Lent is just to give us a very, very simple, but a very, very profound understanding of why we do what we do at Mass. Why does it look like it does? And why is it not changing? 
Because we're going to have a litmus test of why you go to Mass. We want you to experience the Mass as it's meant to be experienced. So if we need to sum up last week in, in, in one word, last week we talked about worship. Because before we can ever talk about the Mass, we need to talk about what we do at Mass, right? And that is we worship. And basically the takeaway from last week was very simple. Who determines how we worship? Answer, God determines how we worship God, not us. It's very simple, very easy understanding. Um, took 30 minutes to break it open last week, but that was, that, that's, the, that, that's the fundamental, most foundational principle that we can start with, is who determines how we worship God? God does, not us. Now, if God is determining how we worship, then that brings us into today's homily, into the second part of a five-part series. That if God determines how we worship, then that begs the question, then how is God asking us to worship him? And again, another simple answer that we're going to break open this morning, God asks us to offer sacrifice it's all throughout the scriptures the word sacrifice is all throughout the mass the word sacrifice to offer sacrifice to God God is the one who determines how we worship so if God determines how we worship we should worship the way God asked and God is asking for sacrifice so let's start off this morning by first getting a very very clear understanding of what the word sacrifice means from a biblical understanding. Because we might think of sacrifice in a lot of different ways, right? I sacrificed this job, or I sacrificed this for my family, I sacrificed, I gave something up for Lent. But let's break open what the word sacrifice means, what a sacrifice is from a biblical understanding. So turn with me to the back page of the bulletin if you have it. Sacrifice, if we need to define the word, very, very simply means to make sacred or to make holy. So the word sacrifice means to make something holy, to set something or to, to consecrate something, right? To make something holy. The word consecrate, if we want to break it open a little bit further, means to set something aside, set something apart right so sacrifices to make something holy what is holy it's to set something aside or to consecrate it or to set something apart for God now if that's the case that like a practical understanding a practical way we can look at that is in the rectory right now um, if you walk into the rectory and hang an immediate right in the kitchen. There's a refrigerator right next to the refrigerator. There is a loaf of bread that is sitting on the, the counter. It's Father Bruce's bread. I don't touch Father Bruce's bread. But um, I think it's nature's own butter bread, right? Good white bread. Mm, he's going to have heart problems. But anyway, um, there's some bread sitting there. In the back, in this closet, right, in the back sacristy, there's a bunch of bread that we use for mass, so what's the difference between the bread that's in the rectory, the bread that's in this 
closet and the bread that is in the tabernacle. The bread that's in the tabernacle has been consecrated or set apart or sacrificed, made holy, put aside, consecrated, given to God. The bread in the tabernacle is God bread. The bread that we have in the closet or in the rectory is regular bread. So what we can do is, is we consecrate certain things to God for use for God alone. That's why you'll never see me walking around at a Mardi Gras parade with my drink in my chalice. Because my chalice has been consecrated to God for the use of godly things. There's a particular prayer, actually, that we pray over a chalice before it's to be used in Mass. And it's consecrating this thing for God things, for godly things. It's setting it apart. It's making it holy. Now, what do we need to offer sacrifice? Because if we understand what sacrificing is, well, we understand what it means to sacrifice. If we understand what a sacrifice is meant to be, it's meant to be consecrated to God. It's meant to be made holy. It's meant to be set apart for God. Then there are four things that we need to offer a sacrifice. Number four on the notes. The first thing we need is an offering. We need something to offer to God. And if we're looking from a biblical standpoint, there are three things typically that were offered to God. Number one, animals. Number two, food. Number three, drink. The second thing we need is we need a person. We need a priest. Priest, at its most fundamental definition, is simply a person who offers sacrifice on behalf of a people. So in the Old Testament, in the temple, there was a priest. And that priest would be in charge of killing the animal or whatever they were doing, or burning the offering. We'll get to that in a second. It was their job to do the stuff to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people. Today, I'm a priest. It's not just because I'm, I'm, I'm talking. It's not just because I got the microphone and everybody got to sit and listen and be bored by what I got to say, right? It's not just because I'm the one who happens to stand at the altar. It's because, or because I would dress in the vestments, that purple and gold, which is beautiful. Anyway, it's not just because of those things. It's because a priest, myself, Father Bruce, Father PJ, when we offer sacrifice, we offer the sacrifice of the Mass on behalf of a people. So to sacrifice, you need something to sacrifice. You need someone to do the sacrificing. The third thing you need is you need an altar. We'll get to this in a second. That's why we have an altar at the center of every church. That's why it's the focal point of the church. A lot of people think, oh, it's the tabernacle. No, no, no. The focal point of the mass in a church is the altar, first and foremost. And then finally... We need to consume the sacrifice. There's two ways you can consume a sacrifice in the Old Testament. Either you can eat it or you burn it. This is also the reason why, if you look closely, our altar is made of marble. Altars are typically made of a precious, permanent material. Because in the Old Testament, 
if a, if a sacrifice was to be burned, to be offered to God, that what they would do is, is they would put the wood on the altar and burn it with the sacrifice on top. And as it was burned, as it was consumed and the smoke went up, it was the prayer of the people according to that sacrifice being offered to God. You use a permanent material because it wouldn't burn. That's why, you don't have, that's why most places, if you have a wooden altar, you still have a spot on the altar called the altar stone, which is a, which is a stone piece of, of marble or granite or something, a precious stone that's meant to be the, the, the symbol of a permanent altar. Just a little fact for you. Um, so we need a person. We need something to sacrifice. We need a person to do the sacrificing. We need a place to sacrifice. And then after all of those things, we need to consume the sacrifice, either by burning or by eating. And then finally, there are two types of sacrifice. There is a clean sacrifice, which is your food or your drink. And then there's a bloody sacrifice, which was, would have been your animals. Now this is where I have, to throw, I have to throw this disclaimer in because I know there's somebody in here that's like, they would really kill animals? I, I, I love animals. I have my dog. He's great. I love dogs. The cat lives with us. He's, he's terrible. He's a demon. If we could sacrifice him, I would. But it would not be an acceptable sacrifice to God. So we're going to throw that aside. But anyway, right? But, uh, it's, this is not about us killing animals just for fun, anything like that. It's because 4,000 years ago, we're talking about 4,000 years ago, what God asked is, and we're going to get into this in a second, but what God asked is, God was asking for them to offer sacrifice to him of what was valuable. What was valuable 4,000 years ago? They didn't have money, they didn't have cash, they didn't have, they didn't have time, like, they, they didn't offer the, the, the same way we offer today. But 4,000 years ago, the things that they would have felt, the things that would have, would have really meant something to them, would have been their food, so their grain, their drinks, water, wine, or their livestock. Because that was the way they made a living. So when God is asking for these sacrifices, it's not just cruelty to animals. Peter didn't exist 4,000 years ago, thank God. Um, what it was is, is that God was asking for the things that were going to be valuable to the people. Now, out of all the ways that God could have chosen for us to worship him, he chose sacrifice. Now, he could have, he could have introduced Facebook 4,000 years ago and had Facebook live stream masses going on from the temple and everything would have been fine. And we could have chosen for us to worship him that way a long time ago. He, God, God was present, ever present, and always with his people and, and leading Israel. And if he wanted us to pray in our homes by ourselves, not doing anything other than it's me and God and that's about it, God could have said, that, that's how I want you to worship. But he didn't. God chose sacrifice. Why? Out of all the ways that God could have chosen 
for us to worship him, why would of all places would he have chosen sacrifice? Well, God doesn't need the sacrifice. God doesn't, God doesn't need um, the animal to be slaughtered so that he can eat. God doesn't need the food or drink to be poured out on the altar so that, so that he, because he's hungry or he wants some cereal or he, he's looking for something to drink. He's thirsty. But God is calling for sacrifice, asking for sacrifice, not for his sake, but for our sake. He wants us to feel it. He wants us to feel the sacrifice. Like I said, what was valuable to the people in the Old Testament? Food, drink, livestock. If they were, if they were offering up their first lamb, they, they, were, they were offering up a piece of their well-being, a, possi- a possible revenue stream for their wool, for the meat, for everything else. If they were offering up food, their first fruits of their grain, they might not get a second fruit of grain. They might not get a second harvest. So they were feeling that sacrifice. And that's what the law was calling for, their first fruits, which we'll get to in a second. It's the same reason why when a man loves a woman and he's, gonna, and he's going to propose to her, it's the same reason why, and every man, married man in here knows, that when you go to the jewelry store and you say, I'm buying an engagement ring, you're going to feel the cost of that engagement ring for a while. Because it's something valuable that you're offering to somebody. It's the same reason why 10 years later, 10 minutes later even, whenever that guy screws up and he goes to buy flowers for his wife, for his girlfriend, that he's going to feel the cost of the flowers because it's something that's valuable that he's giving, giving for the sake of being forgiven. We feel the gift that we give. We feel what we offer. We feel the sacrifice. This is why, and I wasn't going to go here, but this is why um, I've always thought it was weird that at the, at the, when we bring the gifts up, um, that you have bread, you have wine, and we have money, right? It, we, we, we do the collection. That like We in the church, we don't like to talk about money. It's kind of a taboo to talk about money. We, it's not something that we like to like be, keep banging the drum, hey, give, 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 that kind of thing. But there's a reason why we pass the collection when we do. Because that's meant to be a symbol of the sacrifice that we make, that we bring. If 4,000 years ago, it was livestock, food, and drink, Today, it's not so much that, but it's what we do with our treasure. And we feel what that is. We give till it, we feel it. It's meant to, it, it's not just about getting a certain amount to keep the lights on and everything, like that's important, sure, but there, there's also a part of, it's, it's our responsibility as Catholics to feel and to, and to sacrifice 
the things in the world that we see as valuable. That's why we pass it when we do. So, if we have this idea of sacrifice, we have this understanding of 4,000 years worth of sacrifice, we can look at a few examples in the Old Testament of offering sacrifice. The first one, uh, Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel are the children of Adam and Eve. And what happens is they offer sacrifice. One offers a good sacrifice. One offers their first fruits. One offers their, their, their most precious prized fruits. They feel the sacrifice more than his brother. Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground, while Abel, for his part, brought the fatty portion of the firstlings of his flock. Cain brings an unsuitable sacrifice. Abel brings a good sacrifice. And God accepts Abel's and rejects Cain's. The sacrifice is important to God. Noah, if we continue in the book of Genesis, Noah, the first thing that happens after a really, really bad rainstorm, right? 40 days and 40 nights of rain. The first thing that Noah does, once there's dry land, he builds an altar and he offers sacrifice. Moses and Pharaoh, I know Father Bruce said it last week, but it's true. When Moses and Pharaoh, when they have their exchange, when Moses is saying, let my people go, the big, the big Charlton Heston like famous line, right? When he says, let my people go, he's not saying, let my people go away from slavery. What he's looking at Pharaoh saying is, let my people go so that we can go into the wilderness and offer sacrifice to our God. Sacrifice is integral and at the center of a relationship with God. Probably the most famous story in the Old Testament of sacrifice. We can look at Abraham and Isaac. Now, the story of Abraham and Isaac is that Abraham and his son Isaac, they're going up the mountain because God asked Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, a human sacrifice. It's the only time in the Old Testament that God asked for a human sacrifice. And he, now Abraham, for years, had been praying for Isaac. And it was promised by God that him and his wife Sarah would have a son. And then they, after the promise is made, there's 30 years until they actually have a son. Now what happens a lot of times when we think about this story of Abraham and Isaac, people think that Isaac was this kind of naive little kid. He was just like, maybe like 10, 12 years old, and he, would, he didn't really know what was going on, but his dad's saying, come on, we're going we're gonna to go do this sacrifice. But if we, do the, if we do a little bit of mining into the text of Scripture, Sarah, when she had Abraham, and it says that in Genesis 17, when, Je, when Sarah had Abraham, she was 90 years old. Let's do a little bit of math. Sarah was 90 years old, a miracle that she was able to have a son, when she was able to have a son, Isaac. After she has her son, we hear twice in Scripture that there was some time that was passed, there was a long time that had passed. The story of Abraham and Isaac happens in Genesis 22, and the first verse of Genesis 23, Sarah dies at 127 years old. So right before she dies, the entire exchange of Abraham 
and Isaac takes place. So he was probably mid to early 30s. Isaac knew what was taking place. Isaac was old enough to understand what was needed for a sacrifice. So we can look at the story. That Abraham gets his son and they're going up. His only one beloved son. Perfect. Nothing's wrong with him. He hasn't done anything wrong. Completely innocent. But God has asked that he be sacrificed. So Abraham takes the wood of the sacrifice, gives it to his son, and they climb and they walk up the mountain of Moriah. And as they get to the top, Abraham sets up an altar. And when he sets up the altar, he puts the wood for the sacrifice on the altar. And then he prepares to sacrifice his son on the altar. God intervenes and says no. But an only beloved son, by a loving father, is, off, is brought up a mountain carrying the wood for his own sacrifice right before it stopped. Sounds familiar. That an only beloved son would carry the wood that he's going to be sacrificed on up a mountain. Young man, early 30s. And he would be sacrificed at the command of a loving and good father. See, sacrifice is at the center of who we are as followers of God. We're going to get to exactly, later on in this series, we're going to get to exactly how Jesus' sacrifice is meant to be the fulfillment of all the sacrifices. The final example from the Old Testament that we can look at, that we can revisit from, from last week a little bit, was Moses at Mount Sinai. Now Moses gets the Ten Commandments, and we know last week we heard that Moses has four chapters of how the Israelites should live and seven chapters of how the Israelites are called to worship. But when he gets the Ten Commandments, about that first section of when he hears how they're supposed to live, we have the scripture there in the, in the bulletin. It says, Moses then wrote down all the words of the Lord, and rising early in the morning he built at the foot of the altar, at the foot of the mountain, an altar and twelve sacred stones of the twelve tribes of Israel. Then having sent young men of the Israelites to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice young bulls as communion offerings to the Lord, Moses took half of the blood, put it in large bowls, and the other half he splashed on the altar. Taking the book of the covenant, he read it aloud to the people who answered, All that the Lord has said we will, we will hear and do. And he took the blood, splashed it on the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to these words. So what's the first thing that Moses does? They read from the book of the covenant. They read from the scriptures. If only we would have a a, a celebration that we would walk in and then we would sit down and then we would read from the book of the covenant book of the scriptures where we would hear God's word proclaimed we would hear God's word reflected upon we would hear God's word and at the end of hearing God's word after the homily 
after Moses preached, after Moses read out what God had said, the response from the people was, all that the Lord has said, we will hear and do. Basically an I believe statement. That we believe what God has done, we believe what God has said, we believe what God has proclaimed is true. Like, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Then after sacrificing these animals, after sacrificing on the altar, Moses, Moses they, collected the, 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 they collected the blood, they smeared some of it on the altar, but the, other, the rest of it, the blood of the covenant, they sprinkled across the people. The only thing that would be more intimate than just sprinkling it on the people as a sign of the covenant that has been given would be if they could drink it. <laughs> if they could consume it. Like we'll do in a moment. When we come to receive communion. But it won't be the blood of a bull that was sacrificed. It would be the blood of our Savior. It would be the body, blood, soul, and divinity. That if God could figure, like if, if only God could ordain a way, could give us a way, that we could not just have the, the, the sacrifice, the sign consumed on us, but instead in us, where we could receive him. When we come to Mass, what we do in Mass is not from Jesus. What we do in Mass has been revealed to us for 4,000 years, going all the way back to Moses. God has been calling for his people to follow him and for his people to offer sacrifice for a very long time. Now there's one moment in the Mass, and we'll end with this part. There's one moment in the Mass, there's one line in the Mass in particular that oftentimes we might skate past, we might miss because we're kind of in the middle of standing up at that point. But I'm going to say, pray brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. In response we all say, may the Lord accept the sacrifice of your hands praise and glory of his name for our good and the good of all his holy church. You know, I've taught a class a couple of times on the spirituality and the, and the life of the laity. Now in that, in that class, one of the last questions I ask is, in Mass, what is the most uh, active moment for the lay faithful? What's the most active moment in the Mass for the lay faithful? And a lot of people have said things like, well, receiving communion or saying the Our Father or different things. The most active moment for the laity when you all have a job in Mass is the offertory. Well, Father, you're just trying to get money off of us. No. Remember, that, that's meant to be where we feel the sacrifice, but that's not the only sacrifice that we bring to church. Because we are called, the lay faithful are called, that every time we come to church, we're called to bring my sacrifice, me as priest, as Father JD, I'm called to bring my sacrifice 
and offer yours as well. So what are you bringing to Mass this morning as your sacrifice? There's, no reason, there's a reason why the offertory also is one of the moments where we're most distracted. Oh, that homily was too long. I'm going to be late for my appointment, right? Breakfast is going to be late. Because most of the time, that's where the devil wants to attack, where we have our job, where we have our most responsibility. Because if we don't bring a sacrifice to God, nothing is offered. So Mass this morning, what sacrifice do you bring to church? What sacrifice? Who are you bringing? Who, like, Lord, I, I know there's somebody in this church that your marriage is struggling. You and your husband just ain't seeing eye to eye. You and your wife just ain't, it ain't, something's wrong. Is that the sacrifice that you want to bring to Mass? My, my, my kids are getting on my last nerve. They know everything. They don't go to church anymore. Can you offer that on the altar this morning? You put your children on the patent. My, my parents are aging. Are they sick? I got so much anxiety about what's the next phase of life going to look like. Finances are pain. Are pain. My, my job just isn't fulfilling. Whatever it is, what are you bringing today to put on this altar? What is your sacrifice that you're handing to the priest? Put on this altar. Be offered up to God. It's my sacrifice and yours. We're all called, as Catholics, to offer sacrifice. We are all called that when we come to Mass, we bring all the joys, the sorrows, the anxieties, the fear, whatever it is from the world, from the last week, from the last day, from the last time we came to Mass, we are all called to bring that to this altar to be offered at the hands of the priest and then received and sent out. As we wrap up today's message, I'm, I'm going to invite you. We're going to take a couple of seconds of silence. And call to mind in particular who it is, what it is that you bring today as your sacrifice to this Mass. We bring it so that God can consecrate it, that he can make it holy, that he could set it apart, that he could transform it and give us the grace in our life. Let's take a moment of silence as we continue in this holy sacrifice of the Mass.